What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the extraordinarily endearing James Bond A to Z podcast, where we have finally reached the letter E. And excitingly, we only have one episode in this letter, which for me is enormously energizing. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me on this effervescent expedition today is the ever-entertaining and easygoing Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. I'm ecstatic (laughs) to be here. Very good, very good. And and alongside him is the earnest, eager, and ebullient Mr. Tom Wheatley. Um... (laughs) That'll do. Did you notice that I described the show as endearing? Yes. Yeah. Why did you say that? That's what the Radio Times said about the James Bond Eight said podcast. Not, not my words, the words of the Radio Times. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you to David Hepworth for including the James Bond Eight said podcast in a recent roundup of James Bond podcasts. I wouldn't say it was a uh, a glowing endorsement, but we'll take it. Thank you very much. Just nonetheless, yeah. Uh, my mum, uh, I, I bought the Radio Times and showed it to my mum. And she went around telling everybody that I wrote the article. I said, no, mum, stop telling people that. <laughs> but she, she didn't listen. <laughs> well, it was nice to be included anyway, nonetheless. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that. And um, welcome to all our new listeners. This is the James Bond A to Z podcast. We are going through the uh, the people who make the films in an A to Z format. Although this week we don't do many people uh, on this episode because we're sort of scraping the barrel a little bit for the letter E. 
but we yeah, will be. Yeah, tweeting. this is this is really useful for all those those new new listeners we're going to get from Radio Times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, they're scraping the barrel already. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, look, uh, this week on on this episode, we'll be taking a look at the economical enterprise that helped get the James Bond films off the ground. An actor, That's quite a few listeners gone now. (laughs) An actor eternally linked with playing 007. A Bond cinematographer with an excellent body of work. And not just one, but three takes on the word Eon. Excited? Yeah. Excellent. On guard. You've, you've, you've really been planning this out, haven't you? Are you going to do the whole episode like this? No, that's it. Oh, okay. That would have been good. Right. I shall kick things off with a scintillating topic, which is the Edie Levy. Uh, you guys remember talking about this in previous episodes? Yeah, we, didn't we talk about it in Diamonds Are Forever? Diamonds Are Forever, it came up. Yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit in Doctor No as well. So basically, the the Edie Levy was a tax on box office receipts in the UK, um, and it was designed to support the British film industry. So basically, money earned at the box office would be paid back into the UK film industry to support British filmmaking. So specifically, British filmmakers making British films. Um, the idea of the levy was first proposed by Harold Wilson in 1949, but it was, wasn't was implemented and devised until 1950 by Sir Wilfred Eady, hence the name, the Eady Levy. And that uh, was introduced as part of the Eady plan and then made compulsory in 1957. So to be clear, basically a proportion of a ticket price, when someone bought a ticket in the UK, a proportion of the ticket price would then be divided amongst qualifying british films and if you if a british film made more money at the box office then it got more money from the e-livet levy so it was kind of like a rebate to promote british filmmaking and to qualify as a british film you had to have a, a minimum of 85 percent of the film had to be shot in the united kingdom or the commonwealth and only three non-british salaries could be excluded from the cost of the film and so the the levy between 1950 and 1980 took a total of 130 million pounds from British box office takings and paid it back to producers of British films well around 120 million of that was paid back and like I said it was paid in proportion to the film success at the box office so if your films are doing well you'd get more of this uh, kickback from the from the tax man and obviously Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the James Bond film, he realised this and that's why he he moved to the UK to make it these base of operations when he was making films uh, with under Warwick films. And it wasn't just Cubby that came to the UK in this time. You had filmmakers that basically made the UK their permanent base during this time. So Sidney Lumet, uh, Stanley Donan, John Huston, and also most famously Stanley Kubrick because you know that he, he sort of lived here after from 1962 um, to make Lolita and then Doctor Strange Love and so on. So yeah, it wasn't just the Europe American filmmakers who came here, it was the uh, uh, European directors as well, Roman Polanski, Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, they all came to the UK to make use of this tax break. And the E.D. Levy also paid for the National Film and Television School, which is, you know, something that is hugely influential influential still to this day. So, where how does this play into the Bond films? I hear you both ask. <laughs> so, if you remember Dr. No, the episode recently, uh, that film was made uh, at Pinewood and on location in Jamaica because that was part of the Commonwealth at the time. And 
So, you know, although it was a paid for by United Artists who would usually make their films in the US, they decided to do it in the UK and Jamaica because it qualified for, for the fund. So this really helped the James Bond films get off the ground. I think it's really it's difficult to overstate how important this tax break was for making the Bond films British at this point. Because, you know, we'd seen Casino Royale being made with an American in the lead. But this tax break really gave him a great incentive to make these films British. And I think that sort of idiosyncratic British angle that the filmmakers, all the different filmmakers brought to the film, you know, made them distinctively British. And that's something that carries on to this day. We've never had an American James Bond, for example. So by the time they got to Goldfinger, the amount of money that they were getting from the levy had gone up to $1 million. So it was massive. I mean, they paid $1 million to make Dr. No, I think. So it was getting huge. So then later down the line, like you said, Diamonds Are Forever, where it came in to play, the United Artists boss calculated that they could pay, pay Sean Connery his record-breaking fee of $1.25 million for that film to return because they would make that money back from Edie Levy payments. But in the 1970s, after that, there became plans uh, to change the system because the film production industry was actually really booming in the UK. And you found a lot of US films were coming here just to film and just to make their money back from the Levy. And in a variety report talking about the plans to change the uh, ED plan, uh, Cubby Broccoli said that he felt that the plans to change the levy were aimed directly at Eon because of its box office success. The Bond pictures, said Cubby Broccoli, are the biggest contributors to the ED fund and limiting its take would not be good. Oh, sorry, this is Variety reporting. The implication not enunciated by Broccoli is that limiting Eon's ED take could lead to the latter's departure, further reducing Britain's already slumping film industry. So can you see why people were criticising it? Is it is it obvious? No. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the cinemas themselves, they were obviously paying a cut of the cinema ticket takings to the taxman to pay back to make British films. And they felt that that cost on top of the top of the ticket price was basically damaging the number of admissions coming into the cinemas because the ticket prices were rising to cover the cost of the levy. And this, they felt, was like almost like a poll tax on, on cinema goers. And also, the, the, the central flaw really is that it was designed to support British production. But actually, what was happening is that um, people from America and other international companies were coming in and rinsing the tax money. Uh, and most of the revenue and stuff, the, the, the benefits were being paid back to American studios. So by 1984, this was the year that cinema uh, marked the lowest cinema attendances in the UK of any year in recorded history. Only 54 million tickets had been sold that year. That's one ticket per head per population. And that was because of the competition from TV and home video. So that had a massive effect on the fortunes of the cinema chains. And so then in 1984, the British government recognised that the levy was not fulfilling its, pur its purpose and it was scrapped. So 1984, obviously, that meant that the last film filmed with the levy's benefits were a view to a kill. And then obviously we had Living Daylights. And what happened with the next film after Living Daylights? Licence to Kill, they went and shot elsewhere, didn't they? They went and shot they in Mexico. Exactly, yeah. yeah, and that's the impact that the uh, the withdrawal of the Edie Levy um, had on the James Bond films from there. So, 
like I think it was massively important for the films in the early years um, for getting them off the ground, but also for giving them their distinctive British voice, which I think you both agree is something that hasn't ever gone away from the films or hasn't completely gone from the films. So, so yeah, I mean, we've had versions of it since then. Obviously we now have cinemas productions being funded by the national lottery and things like that. So it becomes a bit more, a bit different, but yeah, it's a, a really crucial cornerstone of the film industry in the UK and also the Bond films itself. So yeah. I wonder if that's the only tax we're going to cover in the A to Z. <laughs> Just trying to think what else would be... Not a chance. We'll find some more taxes to cover. I mean, VAT, we'll probably find... find it. Oh, that'd be a good episode, yeah. VAT, yeah. I'm sure it'd be very Sean Connery-based. Self-assessment. <laughs> okay, so E is for Elba. Idris Elba. So... Who? Uh, well, I know, he's not actually part of the Bond franchise. However, for the past 11 years, he has been touted as being the next Bond, following on from Craig. So that's why he's included here. Idrissa Akuna Elba was born in London in September 1972, and he's uh, an actor, producer, director, and a musician. Did you know he was a musician as well? Yep. Do you know, yes. do you know his DJ name? No. Big Driss. Big Driss, yes. Yes. You're, you're a massive fan, aren't you, Butler? Always listening to Big Driss. Huge fan. <laughs> So, just going to briefly skim through just a bit of his career so get an idea of who he is. I'm sure you do know who he is. He's one of the most famous actors in the world. But So, his first role, interestingly, and Wheatley will like this, was in 1995 as a gigolo in an episode of Absolutely Fabulous. I think I've seen, I think I've seen that one quite recently. Yeah. Right. So, it's yeah. an episode called Sex. And I watched a clip because it's, it's on BBC. It's just a clip of it. And... Joanna Lumley's character, I can't remember her name. What's her name? Patsy. Patsy. Patsy says to him, has anyone ever told you you look like Sean Connery? So I just thought, oh, that's, that, that could have been quite, quite nice had, had this come to fruition. That's interesting. That's, yeah. So his most famous roles are probably in The Wire, which I have not seen myself, playing Stringer Bell. And I actually thought he was American because he plays an American in that, doesn't he? So back then I... Didn't think he was British. Luther. Yeah. He plays John Luther. Uh, and the Nelson Mandela film, Long Walk to Freedom, where he plays Mandela. Three iconic roles that he has And made Stephen King's The Dark Tower, which I watched recently. <laughs> <laughs> Shan't be watching that one again. I, Thank you very much. I wouldn't list that in, in <laughs> up there with these three. No, I don't think he does. <laughs> but he's also been in the Marvel franchise as Heimdall, and he, that was in uh, Thor, all Thors, wasn't it? All three Thors. Yep. And, and some Avengers. Avengers yep, yep. Yeah. Not going to mention Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. No, well, I'm going to now, aren't I? <laughs> oh, God, I knew this is going to happen. I thought happen. you'd be all over that. No, absolutely not. He received a Golden Globe and BAFTA nomination for Best Supporting Actor in Beast of No Nation in 2015. Kerry Fukunaga. Yep. In 2016, he voiced Shere Khan in The Jungle Book, the live action remake. Yeah. And most recently, he's played Bloodsport in the Suicide Squad in yeah. the DC Universe. And upcoming, this is the most exciting, he is the voice of Knuckles in Sonic the Hedgehog 2. So I look forward to that. Brilliant. Yeah. Have you seen the first one? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So mm. I won't have any negativity. 
No, if there was a, ever a film that you'd like, it would be Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> so, how does Idris Elba tie in with the Bond franchise? Well, in 2010, a journalist decided to suggest that Idris Elba should play the next Bond. And this sort of snowballed, and he eventually got asked about this. And he had an interview with the Daily Mail, and they said, there have been rumours, but nothing solid. Of course, it would be a huge compliment to be asked, but I wouldn't be interested if it was simply a case of doing them uh, in case of them deciding it was time for a Black James Bond, I can do without the Black James Bond label. I've been called the Black George Clooney and the Black Brad Pitt. They didn't call Daniel Craig the Blonde Will Smith. I just want to get up in the morning and get on with being Idris. I wish they'd called Daniel Craig the Blonde Will Smith. That would have been really a really good at the press conference. That would that would really have like moved the attention away from him being um, uh, the new Bond. Yeah, because it? everyone would really... be baffled. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, that would have been fantastic. Still time. So then the following year, he again talks about it because he's asked in September 2011, I don't want to be the black James Bond. Sean Connery wasn't the Scottish James Bond and Daniel Craig wasn't the blue-eyed James Bond. So if I played him, I don't want to be called the black James Bond. So you can see a pattern forming here. 2013, GQ asked him, let's talk Bond. No, let's not. What's there to talk about? It's a rumour. And I have to tell you, the producers of Bond thought I was self-campaigning. It would be such a turn-off. I'm flattered, obviously, but I've been advised just to pipe down about it. Apparently, Daniel Craig said I'd be a great Bond. Daniel, why did you say that? Drop me right in it. What an honour it would be, but also what an indication of change. I know Ian Fleming lived in Jamaica for a long time, didn't he? I think it's interesting to think what he would have made of a black man playing Bond. So in 2014, there is a leaked email. Have you seen this email? No. So um, there's an email hack at Sony and Amy Pascal uh, sent a message that said Idris should be the next Bond. So this gets leaked. And obviously it just adds further fuel to the fire. Just just, to, just topping it up a bit more after four years. And this is when Bond was at Sony, right? Yes. Yeah. So at this point, this is um, well, their last one was the last... Spectre. Spectre would have been their last one. So yeah, the following year. So in that year... Obviously, with Bond being released, he, he's, they're talking about Bond again. And he had an interview shortlist. He said, the whole thing sits in the press quite a bit, but I'm not sure why. Apparently, the idea of a Black James Bond is controversial. I really haven't been paying attention. And again, later on in that year, I'm probably the most famous Bond actor in the world. And I've not even played the role. Enough is enough. I can't talk about it anymore. It, it does seem to be relentless by this, but that's half a decade of just constantly being asked. Every interview he does without... Is there no other black actor that had any sort of like um, interest from the press? Or was it always just um, Idris Elba? I can't think of another one. As far as I can see, it's always been Idris. Yeah. Mm. But how, how frustrating when you're out there to try and promote your new movie and just keep getting asked the same question over and over and over again. So October 2017, and he says, it's interesting that the Bond thing continues to go. I think it's more about, we just want to have a black guy play James Bond rather than Idris Elba. So that was an interview with New York Times. So it doesn't, doesn't end there. August 2018. Good morning, Britain. Am I looking at the next James Bond? No, he replies. <laughs> but you can, he's just being very short and to the point by now. But in that same month, he releases a picture on Twitter. It's a selfie. And it, the caption is, my name's Elba, Idris Elba. And it got 171,000 likes. 
And obviously, by this point, I think he doesn't care and he's just having fun with it. Because, you know, it sparked a lot of debate and everyone was going, is this it? Is this the announcement? Especially during that time, August 2018, had Daniel Craig said he was doing the next one at that point? No, I think it was officially in my... Oh, was it start of 2019 they officially announced? Right, so this this is adding fuel to that fire. But in January 2019, he had a selfie with Daniel Craig uh, with the caption, Orcs. Yeah, it's at the Globes, yeah. It's quite a good picture. Again, just to add in more debate. And more recently, he's done an interview with Esquire. He says, I say this in jest, but Luther is my answer to Bond. He is my big character that lives in the same space as the Bonds, as the Bonds in the world. Not in terms of spy works or spying, but this is a character that fights evil and will stop at nothing to do it. So in a way, it seems like he feels like he's played that role already, just in his own way and a character that was developed for him. So he doesn't feel the need. But when, when asked, Kerry Fukunaga was asked about what he thought of Idris becoming Bond. And he said, it'd be a cakewalk. Now, I, I don't know what, does anyone know what cakewalk is? Easy. It would maybe it'd be easy. I don't know what the origin yeah, of the phrase is. No. <laughs> he could easily do it. There's an ease when he walks in the room with which he handles himself. And that's sort of suave nature that Bond exudes. That confidence in any situation, strength, calm and awareness. In terms of physicality and being able to move with the punches, you can imagine him handling a situation where things get dire or dangerous, then finishing it off with a smile or some wry, intelligent quip. So he obviously would say that he could play him. And then right up until present day, this is only this week this has happened. So we're in um, October 2021 now. And he was asked by numerous uh, interview, in, in interviews because he's promoting his Netflix movie, The Harder They Fall. And he just bluntly replied, no, I'm not going to be James Bond. So you would hope that has put that to bed. And despite this, he does remain 10 to 1 with the bookmakers, level with Henry Cavill. So I know that you take that with a pinch of salt, but they're still keeping him in in those lists. Also, he's 50 next year. Yeah. So in terms of age, he's he's not, not the right age at all. I think in terms of people who could do it, he could have done it. Right. Absolutely. Right right kind of actor. Mm-hmm. Right mix like you say, right mixture of suaveness and, and, and toughness. Yeah. But he was just the right actor at the wrong time. They had Daniel Craig. They didn't need exactly. another Bond actor. And he's basically the same age as Daniel, just a few years younger, isn't he? So mm. um if Daniel had perhaps left after Skyfall, then maybe he might have had a chance. I think, yeah, if Daniel Craig leaves after Skyfall, then Idris Elba has got a 10-year window to make the role his own. But yeah. it didn't happen. So I don't know how true this is, but did you read about how he came to be in the frame? I know you said a journalist suggested that he should be. But did you no, read... No, there, there was a poll, wasn't there? Yeah, so there was this online poll where people were allowed to suggest people who should be the next James Bond. Did you know who came top of the list or came top of the poll? It was Dizzy Rascal. <laughs> and, and so this Blimey. this journalist took it upon himself to say, yes, it's time for a black James Bond, but it's not Dizzy Rascal. It should be Idris Elba. And so we have Dizzy Rascal to thank for 10 years of, of Idris Elba conversation. But right. and, and secondly, did you also see recently that clip from the audience of GoldenEye? You know, when they do Vox Pops of people coming out of a film. 
I have seen that. Yeah. yeah. So they've got this Vox Pops. Maybe if we get the clip, we can add a, add the audio clip here. He's really good. He's, he's got he's got all the charm. He's got all the looks, and you know what I mean. And he's fit. He's strong, and blah blah blah. Yeah, he's, he's all right. He's all right. Yeah, Idris Elba is one of the punters that the t- this TV crew asks about Goldeneye, and it's really interesting his answer, what he says. But it was really funny, just that he was b- talking about bit like being a fan of Bond all those years ago. And then never, yeah. never got his chance to do it. What oh. I was thinking, though, and now he's the right age to play M. Mm. If we mm. do a young... But there's a lot of people who are the right age to play Zeb. <laughs> you don't really want a, a Bond person to play him, do you? I don't or... know. I don't know, because Ray Fiennes was linked with playing Bond many years ago. No, he he true, was yeah. considered. And if we go for a young Bond, and if it's, as I would like it to be, maybe less stuffy Whitehall and maybe like more in-the-field secret agent, mm. you know... He might make a good. He plays a good gruff boss, doesn't he? I think. Yeah, yeah. Where, where he'd play an M that was sort of used to be in the field. Yeah, yeah. That sort of vibe. Yeah, yeah. You, have you seen Zootropolis? See yes. He plays the 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 chief of police in that. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that's where it's come from. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. It's planted <laughs> in your head, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Idris Elba. Uh, e is for Elswit, Robert Elswit. You both know who Robert Elswit is? Cinematographer. Cinematographer, American American cinematographer, big, big name in the world of photographic direction. He's done a lot of, of films over the past couple of decades. Uh, some of the highlights of his career are Boogie Nights, uh, Magnolia, Good Night and Good Luck, uh, There Will Be Blood, um, Inherent, uh, Inherent Vice, Nightcrawler, he's done loads more um, and some of them you can just tell that they've got fantastic sort of um, photographic work on them. Punch Drunk Love, which is a beautiful looking film. There's loads, there's loads of films he's been on but he is in, for us, he's most famous for director of uh, cinematography on Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, which is the only film that he's done uh, cinematography on. But he has he's he's holds a quite an interesting place in the world of sort of spy films and cinematography because he's the only cinematographer to have shot a Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies, a Bourne movie, The Bourne Legacy, and two Mission Impossible movies, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. So he's got this sort of weird link to all of the massive spy genres that have ever existed, which is quite interesting perspective for for somebody because they're all quite different films as well. I'll talk a bit more about. Um, what he said about the sort of link between those in a bit. He does a lot of work with Paul Thomas Anderson and also works with George Clooney quite a bit. He shot the film um, Good Night and Good Luck, which uh, George Clooney was in, a multiple Oscar-nominated film. He actually shot the film in colour, then converted the film into black and white in post-production because he he said that the, the black and white style that he got from it actually benefited from the fact that the colour differentiation in the black and white made it more interesting, which is not something you hear very often. Um, he got his first Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography in 2006 for that film. And then two years later, he won for There Will Be Blood, which I haven't actually seen, I don't think. Oh, it's one of my all-time favourites, that is. Stunning yeah, film. This weekend. So yeah, he in his earlier career, he worked as a visual effects camera operator for Apogee Productions. You know who they are? Nope. They did Star Trek motion picture, Empire Strikes Back, and E.T., Ooh. apparently. So he worked on all of those in his early career. 
Um, he's a big defender or was a big defender of shooting on film as opposed to shooting in digital. He, he's gone on record to say that images shot digitally have no texture and no grain. But when it came to Nightcrawler, he actually started shooting uh, digitally, um, which, of course, came after Tomorrow Never Dies, which was in 1997. So Tomorrow Never Dies was filmed uh, well, directed by Roger Spotswood and was shot on Panavision cameras and Panavision lenses. I don't think, from memory, I, I tried to find sort of, sort of evidence on the cinematography and the views that people have around Tomorrow Never Dies. Doesn't seem to be a lot of people mentioning the cinematography on that film. Definitely seemed. I think one of the problems was that it was very similar to a lot of the other stuff that was going on in the 90s, wasn't it? It's not very forward thinking. It's not very. Yeah, it's very, um, very of its time, isn't it? Very of its time. So it doesn't really stand out from a sort of. Um, photographic perspective but he did talk he talks a bit quite a lot about um, I found a few interviews with him but they're not about they're not so much about the films he did they're more about lighting he's very does a lot of interviews on the lighting that he uses and how he does those things I'm not going to go into depth in those because to be honest I didn't even understand them um, they're very in-depth sort of lighting chats but he interestingly he talks a bit about in an interview about the Bourne style he very rarely gets sort of questions on Bond it's sort of part of his like history which is like not really People don't really bring it up, really, because he's got so many amazing films. So it's not like he was probably quite young when he did it as well. But he's talking about um, Bourne. He said it was a wonderful stylistic choice that Doug Lyman made on the first Bourne movie. You know it's been around for a long time, but never in a drama, never in an action film. And then Doug Lyman reinvented the action spy movie. He really did as crazy as he is. You also have to give credit to Oliver Wood. They changed everything. They made it so you couldn't make James Bond. Uh, you couldn't make a James Bond movie. All of a sudden, you have a strange European reality to a sort of nervous, anxious camera. So he's talking about using that handheld camera style where you're in the action and you're running around. And he's, and, and it, it always existed in documentaries and things, but never in a film. You always use beautiful, sweeping shots in films. So it's clear there that he's got a lot of respect for, for that Bond, uh, Bond style and then not so much for the James Bond stuff before it. All by suggesting that they couldn't really make any more James Bond films after Bourne existed. Also, it talks a bit about filming in England. And he talks about how it's really interesting to come to England and work with the um, Bond film company because it's such a strange company in that, or Eon, in that they just focus so much on Bond. So it's such a strange way to direct. But he's, he talks a bit about how it was amazing to be part of this sort of giant British thing with huge sets and, and absurd schedules. And one interesting story I found about him was he, he talks about a sequence at the start of Tomorrow Never Dies. Do you remember the one where he's it's, it's in the snow in the mountains and he steals a plane from... The Bazaar, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's meant to be set in Afghanistan. Um, they filmed it in the Pyrenees. He did it with Vic Armstrong. And he's, he says that when he was filming, he turned around and there was a load of these like 60-year-old men behind him. And they were holding these 8x10 cameras, which are cameras you don't see very often these days it's quite an old school thing and then he was like saying to them what what are you doing we're taking those pictures and like oh no we're, we're we're taking these transparencies giant photo blow-ups right so basically from and it's a very common thing really in really olden days so like in the 60s you'd have people at sets taking pictures of the scenes so that when you got back to the studio you could then set up say you had a car chase you'd already got the scenes or the photographs from the set that you've been at, whether it's the mountains or the desert. So you could go back and then do all your stuff on in Pinewood with these massive photos, which you don't use anymore because it's all digital, it's all green screen. Yeah, yeah. All that. But he says that they still do it or they did on Tomorrow Dies and they'd never used it. He was like, well, well there's no reason why we'd ever use this stuff. But because it's such a big company that has so, all these sort of legacy things with it, they're still there. They're still just taking these photos just because it's tradition. 
in, in that in that company, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's um, uh, Robert Elsewhere. E is for Eon, Eon Productions. So Eon Productions Limited was formed by Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in July 1961. Uh, and it's an independent English company. It was created for the sole purpose of producing the James Bond films. So the name Eon um, didn't actually mean anything at first, but later a retronym. Have you heard of this phrase before? A retronym emerged. So with Eon they say now stands for everything or nothing. So they basically retconned that name to mean um, yeah, everything or nothing. And I think they say it's because Harry and Cubby were both gamblers and that's a sort of a gambling type mm. uh, idea, everything or nothing. So interestingly, just going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, the fir- apparently the first instance of someone saying that E.ON stands for everything or nothing was in 1983 in a book by Stephen J. Rubin called The James Bond Films. And he literally says, I've discovered that Eon production stands for everything or nothing, an appropriate tag. People uh, also suggest that possibly the origin of the name is it's um, a reference to the phrase Eon as in A-E-O-N, which is something that lasts for a very long time and which is something that Cubby and Harry were hoping for with the Bond films. But um, it's hard to know where it came from. But anyway, I mean, we're obviously we talk about Eon all the time and we know it's the company that makes the James Bond films. Basically, when Eon are ready to make a James Bond film, they go to the studio, whoever they're partnered with, ask for the money and then they go about developing the script and make and then going into production and blah, blah, blah. It's a small it's a small company and they're own, they only make the James Bond films, basically. Um, although that's not quite the case anymore nowadays, but um, I'll come on to that in a second. But when Eon was set up, company uh, made its base in Cubby's old Warwick Films HQ at number two South Audley Street. Cubby had an office on the first floor and Harry's had the top floor. Um, And the first person they hired was an accountant called Stanley Sopel. And so when Stanley Sopel joined, it was him, Harry, Cubby and a secretary. Um, And in the book, When Harry Met Cubby by Robert Sellers, uh, Harry's office is described as a brown panelled room with leather sofas and armchairs, shelves crammed with books and scripts, no pictures on the wall, small small tables with telephones on them and a desk covered with telephones, six phones altogether. I think we talked, I can't remember when we talked about Harry Saltzman, but how he was taking like calls constantly uh, in his office. Um, but then Cubby's office apparently was much more spacious, like a gentleman's club, and it had two antique partners desks facing each other. And this is where most of the meetings at Eon took place. Um, and so the first order of business when Stanley Sopel joined the company was to get the Warwick film crew back together. So this was Ken Adam and Ted Moore and Richard Maybaum, all these people that they'd worked with previously. Um, and famously, it was in this South Audley Street office where the famous meeting with Sean Connery took place that we've talked about many times where he came in and he was bolshy and, you know, set his stall out and uh, and really fought for the for the, the part and then left and they watched him from the window. And that's when they saw him walking like a panther, etc, etc. We've done all this stuff before. But some fun facts about Eon for you. Uh, Harry once had a Rolls Royce, a Rolls Royce Phantom, and it had the license plate Eon 1 which I thought was quite interesting because obviously Harry later had Cub One, 
Uh, in the 1970s, Egon expanded. Obviously, this is when they were doing really big business with Spy Love Me and all the films after that. And they took over another building across the way on the corner of Tilney Street. But in 1975, we all know what happened. Harry sold his shares of Dan Jack and uh, to United Artists and obviously then left Eon behind. And that is another story that we'll go into when we get to Harry Saltzman. So people who worked for uh, Eon after that, you know, obviously Barbara Broccoli was brought in, as was Michael G. Wilson. Michael G. Wilson uh, was Cubby's stepson. And he came in as a legal advisor. Barbara was the daughter of Cubby and Dana, and she was brought in to work on publicity in the 70s. And then the next phase of Eon, in 1992, they moved premises completely to a new property at 138 Piccadilly, which is now called Eon House. So have you ever been there? Have you ever seen, gone past it or? Didn't even know it was there. Yeah, I think it's on the on the corner of like Hyde Park. Uh, it's a lovely spot if you look on uh, Google Maps. I've never been past it, to be honest. But yeah, so the company itself has made a number of non-Bond films, starting with, in 1963, Call Me Buona. Um, Classic. Yep. They also um, tried to, they developed a number of films that never got made as well, but that was the first one they made. And then it really then jumps forward to 2014 when they made The Silent Storm and Radiator. Uh, in 2017, they made Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, uh, Wheatley, one of your favourites. Very good film. In 2018, they released a film called Nancy. <laughs> Uh, 2020 they released the rhythm section and in 2021 uh, they've literally just put onto I, uh, BBC iPlayer if you're in the UK this film called Ear for Eye by Debbie Tucker Green which has Lashana Lynch in it it's a series of monologues delivered to camera about uh, race but interestingly those last five films were directed by female directors so Eon really you know under the stewardship of uh, Barbara Broccoli really pushing for female filmmakers uh, they also made a number of they've also made a number of several uh, theater productions including Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in 2002 which was based on the Ian Fleming book Chariots of Fire Once Othello The Band's Visit The Country Girls Love Letters The Kid Stays in the Picture which apparently was fantastic and Strangers on a Train they are also working on a musical version of Sing Streets. Have you guys seen that film? No. I have indeed, yes. Oh, it's fantastic. Coming of age Irish film. Um, but yeah, they were supposed to open that. It's set in the 80s, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really 80s film. Yes. It was set in, set in Dublin. Um, it was supposed to open in 2020, but obviously got delayed um, to uh, winter 2021. So maybe by the time this comes out, it might have opened. Um, so just a few other things just to note about Eon. Obviously, in 2012, we had the 50th anniversary and they uh, Eon was behind a few exhibitions. One that me and you went to weekly, Designing Bond, 50 Years of James Bond Style at the London Barbican Centre. I remember that well. I remember it well. And that's overseen by this chief archivist at Eon, Meg Simmons. And she's quite an important person at, at, at Eon. She sort of keeps the flame alive for the, um, the archive stuff of, of James Bond. They also opened Bond in Motion, uh, the Bowley Motor Museum, which then later moved into the site in London. And then they also did a exhibition at Washington's DC International Spy Museum called Exquisitely Evil, 50 Years of Bond Villains. Basically, if it's a James Bond and it's official, then Eon are behind it. One of their other big ventures recently was the opening of 007 Elements, which is in, in the mountains uh, in Austria, near Pisgloria, I think. And that's a big James Bond exhibition there. And then in 2019, Eon partnered with Secret Cinema for Casino Royale, which again, you and I weekly went to, and that was a lot of fun. 
I I went to that as well. Ah, excellent. Just just, just not with you two. Yeah, we weren't friends then. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good job because we were absolutely useless. At absolutely it. useless. Yeah. Oh, um, I just improvised my way out. I, I loved it. Of course it. you did. Yeah, oh, I was yeah. useless. I was talking well, to. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I had to get drunk to talk to. Oh, I was talking to Villiers most of the time. Ah, very good. I, I was talking to people who weren't working there. Me, <laughs> really confused. <laughs> um. But yeah, also, they've also just announced uh, a Macbeth on Broadway with Daniel Craig. So Barbara Broccoli uh, working Great with Great poster. Craig. Yeah. It's, really good poster. Yeah, and Ruth Negger in that. She's a fantastic actress. But yeah, that's that's Eon. But that's not where the story with Eon ends. No, because we have Everything or Nothing, the untold story of 007, which is a documentary which was released in 2012 as part of those 50th anniversary Celebrations of the Bond franchise is directed and written by filmmaker Stephen Riley. And it chronicles the whole story right from the beginning with the story of Ian Fleming, his origins, how he became a writer, his uh, tussles with Hollywood. You know, once he'd created the character of Bond, he could see where it, it could go, but struggled getting it on the screen. And, and then all the way up to 2012, and it's in chronological order. It premiered on Global James Bond Day, which is which was the 5th of October 2012, and it, it is so each year. And it's a Talking Heads documentary. And we hear from all six of the actors that have played Bond, although the Sean Connery is archive footage, sadly. But it's uh, it's good to hear from from the other five. But yeah, it's got lots of lots of different out, outlooks on, on the franchise. It's got interviews with Ken Adam. Barbara Broccoli, Judy Dench, and even Bill Clinton turns up, which uh, is, is rather interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's well worth a look. I, I'm guessing I must have seen it when it came out, but I revisited it recently for this. And um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I, I love the myself... stuff with um, Christopher Lee. Yeah. He's obviously Fantastic. a great sort yeah. of talking head. Um, yeah. It's really it, uh, often it's just one word, and you're like, "That's all it needed." Fantastic! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very nice sort of simple summing up of everything with a few nice facts. It's I always find it useful. I've watched it a couple of times now, and as as you were saying earlier, Brendan, we know most of it now from all the research. But it's mm. nice to have it all put together in a nice simple package, so you you can see it or how it all links together and when everything happened. Absolutely. Basically, if you don't want to listen to 300 episodes of us, you know drumming on about it just watch this documentary job done hour and a half it's low it's low on tax information isn't it yeah yeah they don't uh, cover that <laughs> they gloss over it if anything <laughs> yeah, yeah they really need a bit more don't they they really need to get, go in depth on that but um <laughs> it, obviously one thing to say is that it's it's the sanitized eon approved story of, of the james bond yes. films yeah, yeah, so yeah. a lot of the rough edges are, are are polished off um i think it's fair to say but what i i love about it as well is you get dalton talking about bond um after he's left because most of the interviews with dalton are when he was bond there's very few of him talking on camera about being james bond he's really good in the in the documentary as is tim is. Uh, as is pierce brosnan as well actually pierce brosnan fantastic when when he um he tells a story about when he got became bond the excitement in his face when he's revisiting it, you could see he's living it again in his head. It's worth it just just mm. to see that. You know, it's it's great. I would love to see the full versions of the interviews. That would be really interesting. Yes, but yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It's not included in the box set though, which is is, is annoying. Well, no, very bizarre that it's not, and relatively hard to 
get hold of streaming. I think it's only uh, currently only available on Prime in the UK. It's not on Google. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I ended up buying it. But it's worth worth having. Maybe we'll get a new version of it for 2022 for the 60th anniversary, maybe an extended. Yeah. I mean, they released two maybe films since. Maybe a completely since. new thing. Maybe a completely new documentary. Yeah, that would be good. I mean, the good thing is, is it captured the the the, uh, the the thoughts of a lot of people who are now sadly no longer with us. Like Joanna Harwood, I think, comes up early in the uh, in the episode talking about writing Doctor No, which is fascinating stuff. I think. Mm. Um, obviously, yeah. Christopher Lee no longer with us. Mm. Ken Adam Moore. also. Yeah, Roger Moore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if 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 you, it's a great starting place if you're going to start listening to the uh, James Bond A to Z podcast and you just want something to get a feel for. For Bond. Yeah, and when you sit there and think, hang on, what what about tax breaks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's when you like a post credit sequence with about tax breaks. Nothing. And what why about Gloria they... Graham? Uh, there's nothing about her. <laughs> well, and why did they use BMW? Well, <laughs> let me tell you, my friend. It's yeah. all here in the James Bond if, you, if you've got 150 hours spare, we've got it for you. Waiting. <laughs> Okay, so we've not finished, and we've got another reference to Everything or Nothing, and that is the computer game that was released in 2004. Now, I've talked about this computer game when we did the Piers Brosnan episode, because he plays quite a large part in it, or the main part. But I'll, I'll do a bit of an overview of the game itself and, and the history of it. I have never played this game. I've, I've got a pile of Bond games in, in my room, but I, I thought I had this, but I haven't got it. I think you've played it, haven't you, Brandon? I get confused with this and Nightfire, so maybe. I think, I'm not sure if Nightfire is third person, but this is, it's a third person shooter, so it's not like Goldeneye. And the reason it's a third person shooter is because the company that made it, EA, EA Games, they wanted, they were basically saying that if you're playing Bond, you need to see Bond because Bond is a character. So it's not like Doom, where you play as some generic soldier. Or Halo, yeah. Yeah, you want to see the character. Although I'm not sure that's entirely true because GoldenEye was so successful, that you don't really it doesn't really work. But uh, the other reason was that they said um, it's all very well in a um, first person shooter shooting guns, but Bond is famous for fighting as well. And if you're in a first person shooter, you can't do fighting, so you have to do it as third person. So you can do like grabs and punches and things effectively, a bit like Metal Gear Solid, really. It had a massive cast, so it was treated like uh, I think it had a pretty tasty budget on this one. I couldn't find out the actual budget, but you probably assume that they would based on the number of cast members they got in. Obviously, they had Piers Brosnan come back for um, the role of James Bond, but you also had people like Richard Keel um, back playing Jaws. John Cleese was in it. Judy Dench was in it quite a bit. So yeah, you can see that they were pu- pulling pulling out all the stops for this one and trying to make it a bit of a big deal. Uh, it's not just a third-person shooter. It's got dr- uh, driving levels as well. I can't remember. I think it's like eight different driving sequences. I'm, I think I saw it as a helicopter sequence as well. Um, and apparently, the uh, they use the game engine for. I'm trying to find it here. I think it's Need for Speed. So they actually ported across uh, another EA Games driving engine to make it good, which is quite nice because if you've ever played the, the most hated games I've ever played are ones that try to do two different games in one. They're rubbish. They always like put a bit half and half effort in it. Especially the driving sequence. They're always absolutely useless. I think they look quite good on this one. I think they were meant to be all right. So the story of this game is ridiculous. And I actually struggle to try and even understand the story because it's so convoluted. Obviously, they're trying to... Every level is in a different place. It's not like a Bond film where you have three places. 
they've got like 12 levels with all these different places and they're trying to wedge it into the storyline. But uh, it's all about nanotechnology, uh, getting into the wrong hands. Um, he, Bond goes to some research laboratory in the Sahara to sort of collect it and protect it from the baddies. So anyway, he, he saves saves some woman who is meant to be looking after this nanotechnology, takes her to a safe house to find Willem Dafoe, uh, play, uh, who's playing a character called Nikolai Diavolo, who's a former KGB ag- agent who is uh, whose mentor and friend was Max Zorin, and soon find out that he is actually a baddie and he wants to use the nanotechnology for himself. So he's, he's delivered it to him. He ends up going to New Orleans to find Diavolo, takes part in a rally car chase sequence. Then he ends up in Moscow. I've missed out a few steps here because I couldn't, couldn't quite follow it. But he ends up in Moscow where William Defoe is trying to fire these nanobots into space via a rocket to come back down and do something to people. Nonsense. It's all nonsense. Sounds a lot like No Time to Die. Well, yeah, a bit. <laughs> but it's a probably, there's probably a few more elements that confuse it even more. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal. Bruce Feirstein was involved in the script writing. I don't know to what extent. It started to develop in 2001, didn't come out in 2004. So it's quite a big project and it was delayed quite a bit. Scott Bandy, he was the guy who works for EA. He's the game producer who talks about putting Bond in the third person sequence. They also used a cyberware scanning machine to replicate the actors' faces as well as loads, hundreds of different photos and hours of video to sort of create these appearances of the characters and motion capture as well. So they were throwing everything to make this, this look good. The, to be honest, the video sequences aren't bad. I mean, by, by 2004 standards, they're pretty sweet looking um, sort of interstitial segments and they've got quite good sound in them and stuff. So they've put a lot of effort into this sort of storyline of this and, and making the characters great. It's not amazing. By like, if you looked at it now, it just looks a bit rubbish. But it's nowhere near like the old polygon things that you find on a lot of PlayStation games. The, the best bit about it is, do you remember Maya singer? Yeah, yeah. So she sings the theme tune. It's utterly awful, right? So it's got its own theme tune. Have a listen to it on YouTube when you get a chance. It's awful, but it sounds almost exactly the same to Die Another Day. Yeah, which which is quite odd because you know she probably was a lot cheaper than um, Madge on uh, Die Another Day but it's worth a listen because it's such a lame song Bit of a review, some review bits. It did really well, actually. GameSpot said it's a really great game, uh, perhaps the best James Bond game ever made. Mm. Chill out. <laughs> um, you're wrong. GameSpot then said uh, it was the best PlayStation 2 game of February 2004. It was a runner-up for the publication's annual best game based on a TV or film property, IGN. Named it the game of the month for February. EA shakes things up and gives us a fresh new perspective on how good Bond can be. The game achieved platinum hit status on the Xbox. Uh, Maxim gave it a perfect 10 and stated that players can race through a shitstorm of artillery fire in a Porsche Cayenne Turbo, complete with Q-Cloak invisibility feature. Porsche? Porsche Cayenne Turbo, yeah. Bond drives a Porsche in... Well, they probably didn't have the didn't do a deal with them. uh... (laughs) I imagine companies like Aston Martin don't care if it's in a computer game. It's probably not going to have much significance, is it? Mm. Times gave it uh, five stars and said it. 
the over-the-shoulder style does allow for the seamless integration of glossy scenes to drive on the plot and add a more genuine movie-like feel to the game. Uh, somebody didn't like it. Edge magazine said it's perhaps because the title benefits from such a high production spend. In fact, that the average design and execution becomes more pronounced. So they weren't really a big fan of it. And then chap called, ever heard of Destructoid? Yeah. Website. They compared the game to a bad Bond film such as Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough, citing its mix of ridiculously bombastic car chases, complete lack of subtlety and clever cinematic presentation. So there you go, a bit of a mixed bag. Definitely hasn't stood the test of time. I don't think they've ever tried to re-release it on any platforms. But if you look at it, it's it's so very early 2000s. It's got that sort of Max payne feel, mm-hmm. but also it's got that, when you shoot your gun, you've got triangles for the for the aim. Um, ah, yes. All very time crisis. Yeah. Uh, doesn't look great, to be honest. Oh, it also had an uh, online co-op on, I think, PlayStation 2, which is quite an early feature to, to get on a, a game in that in that period. So, um, yeah, they, they really pushed the boat out and put a lot of technology and ideas into it. But I think probably wasn't that was Nightfire is probably the last one that was released, wasn't it? Bond film, uh, Bond game. Um, but yeah, definitely trying to relive that golden eye joy. So this was Brosnan's last outing as Bond. Oh, yes. Um, and if, yeah, uh, I mean, forgive my ignorance. So it came out on GameCube, PlayStation 2 and Xbox. Yes. And so if you wanted to play it now, are there any platforms that are, what do they call it, backwards compatible? No, you wouldn't be able to play it on anything, I don't think. You'd have to um, emulate, wouldn't you? You'd have to emulate, which is really hard to do with PlayStation 2 games, I think. So it is really hard to get hold of. And I think I've got a PlayStation 2, actually. I could order it. But yeah, I've not. I definitely, um, I don't I don't think you could get it. It's really hard to do on an emulator. Just thinking about that, um, putting a racing game or a driving game into a, another game. Do you remember the Die Hard trilogy game on the PlayStation? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was awful. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it as well. well all, all of the game. Well, the driving game. But was no, it? you had the, the the hostage one, which was great. That was... It was a trilogy. The, the first one, one was a shooter. One at the airport. second one was third person running no, around. The, f- the, the, third no, the first was running around. first one was running around in the tower block. The second one was a shooter, yes. an on-rail shooter with a light gun. And yeah. then the third and one was, was a driving car. game, wasn't it, around New York? Because in... that was with Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, I used to love that. Really? Yeah, we, I used to play around our friend Omar's house like every day in, day out. Yeah. I used to... I don't know if it's done the test of time. Yeah, Ollie Hughes' house. So, um, yeah, all, all the, all the classics. classics. Cool. Is that everything on Eon? Have we really milked that cow to death? I think so. The only thing I was going to say about Eon is I, I'm annoyed that they gave the title away because that's a... They should have saved that mm. title for something really big, like I don't know the hundredth Bond film or something like that. But it is a nice title. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did use it for a film. Is that what you mean? Like saved it for a one of the actual films? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it could get recycled later down the line. Yeah, and it's they... not like they've used it to anything. Like the game is not really. It's not, not going to stand really the right. test of time. Is it's it? not so canon. They could is get it? away with use. No, and they could get away with using it again. But I guess the documentary yeah. being named it is uh, is a bit of a bit of a sticking mm. point, isn't it? But doesn't mm. the documentary have a f- subtitle? Yeah, you, you said yeah, that already. The untold you? story of 007, Yeah, so maybe that's why they put that in there. Yeah, maybe. So that wraps up the letter E. I can't believe it took us so long to get through C and D, and E is done in one one episode. Yes. Oh, it feels really nice, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel good? 
Yeah. So, so next we've got the letter F. And obviously we've got a few good things coming up in the letter F. First of all, the big one, Ian Fleming. Oh yeah, I forgot uh, yeah. about it. Yeah. The big man. The man who gave us James Bond in the first place. For your eyes only. And from yes. Russia with love, which is the one yes. I'm so excited to do. Yeah. So I think one. for all of us, is it top three, top top four, top five Bond films? Top three for me, yeah. Yeah. What is? From Russia with Love. Oh, I, was, I thought you were talking Three Eyes Only. I was getting really confused then. Gene, wait, um, Earth to Wheatley. Earth love. to Wheatley. I would... I've not, I've not watched it for a long time. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say anything yet until I've watched well, it. Well, I'll tell you now. You're going to love it. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to those. And we've also got a bunch of really exciting characters and filmmakers, all that come under the letter F. Jenny Flex, specifically, Wheatley. I know you're a big fan. Well, he's the main one. Uh, she's the main one you should have mentioned when you started going through the list. Yep, yep. And obviously, <laughs> Kerry Fukunaga, who we have been talking about um, on the on the No Time to Die episode. So we're looking forward to getting to him. But yeah, that will keep us ticking over, I think, until, um, yeah, for the next next few weeks. So thank you for listening uh, to the James Bond A to Z podcast. If people want to email the show with more tax information, who, who can, how can they get hold of us? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk and social at jamesbondatoz on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. James Bond will return in the James Bond A to Z podcast next week. Thank you. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.